Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Ryan Bourne discusses the means to full employment with President Joe Biden in the White House. Robert Farley discusses the Space Force and its possible role in the military going forward. And Cato's Johan Norbert details how openness is the key to wealth and opportunity. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we look forward to the Biden administration, of course, we're recording this still in the Trump era, uh, but we're looking forward a little bit to uh, areas of policy where we expect uh, Joe Biden to have a broader berth to make some positive change. Those are, of course, trade and immigration. And to talk about that, I'm joined by Simon Lester, Associate Director of Cato's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, and Alex Narasta, who directs Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Alex is the co-author of the new book, Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions, along with uh, Benjamin Powell of Texas Tech University. So, gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here with you, Caleb. Pleasure to be here. As of this recording, we are at the tail end of the Trump years in the White House, uh, at least so far. And Alex, uh, a personal note here, I am really happy that when I Google Alex Narasta now, Wretched Refuse comes up in the first page of results. Well, I'm really happy about that too. I just hope it leads to better sales. I hope it doesn't end up reflecting on you personally. Well, like everything I do, I'm sure it will. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, uh, Simon, when we uh, think about the trade policies, we should look backward a little bit of of what we uh, hope for from a Biden administration. Give us a sense of what we saw with respect to trade in the Trump years. I think the the simplest and clearest way to reflect, you know, the Trump's trade policy and the Trump administration's trade policy is his famous quote that he's a tariff man. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons that, that Trump and the Trump administration put forward uh, for their use of tariffs. Um, and we can go through them all, but I'm not sure they really matter. I mean, they basically get us to the place where uh, we raise tariffs uh, because somebody, Trump, Peter Navarro, maybe the U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer, just thinks tariffs are good. And their vision for trade policy is something uh, that would take us back to um, basically 19th century U.S. trade policy, Uh, just high tariffs, no international trade agreements to constrain our ability to use tariffs. Um, You know, we can go through it if you want, as we record this, the the specifics of it. That's sort of the broad outline of of what Trump did in in trade policy. And I want to understand this uh, as clearly as possible. Uh, You and I have talked about this many times on the Cato Daily podcast. Uh, When the Trump administration moved to alter the the way the United States did trade, as a practical matter, what he ended up doing was break a lot of supply chains in which the United States was embedded. Yeah, that, that's right. So if you, it, you know, take us back to the 19th century again, just briefly, you know, you had a very simple production process there uh, where, you know, you had a, a manufacturer of steel who extracted iron ore uh, from somewhere nearby and turned it into steel. Um, but to but today, you know, production is done much differently. Uh, you have 
you know, companies all over the world cooperating and selling to each other. Um, so, you know, you get the inputs from one place and you, you ship it somewhere else for, for transformation and then somewhere else for, for further processing. And the Trump administration's goal was to, to undo that a bit and bring the supply chains, you know, wholly back to the United States. Now, I think the good news is they didn't succeed, um, but that certainly was, was their goal. And uh, a lot of the tariffs they imposed tried to push us in that direction. Um, and, you know, sort of at the margins, uh, I, I suppose somebody might be able to find here and there somewhere where they succeeded. But I think for the most part, what you see is just um, it, it drove up costs for U.S. manufacturers and, and made it more difficult for them to compete in the in the U.S. and global marketplace. One thing that uh, and careful listeners of Cato Audio and the Cato Daily Podcast will will hear me hammer on this regularly. The one point, the most important point, I think. Uh, other than the fact that trade voluntarily undertaken benefits both parties, is this. About half of the stuff that Americans import is stuff that Americans use to make other stuff. Those are intermediate goods. And to the extent that you're placing tariffs on goods from other countries, you are affecting the uh, ability of American producers to make stuff. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And you, you can think of sort of obvious examples are, are U.S. Uh, automobile manufacturers who are, are getting inputs um, these days. I mean, ca cars are sophisticated technological things with software and everything in them. So, so yeah, I mean, all of these manufacturers, you know, ha have to get inputs from, uh, you know, use a variety of inputs. They don't make every part of their product themselves. They outsource it to to companies within the U.S., companies outside the U.S. And if you start imposing these taxes on, on their inputs, it, it drives up their costs and it makes it harder for them to compete with uh, Japanese or European or Canadian or, or Chinese competitors who don't face the same cost. So, so it's sort of ironic. I mean, the Trump administration talked about helping U.S. manufacturers uh, bring uh, manufacturing back to the U.S., but a lot of their actions really made it more difficult, uh, more costly to, to manufacture in the United States. All right. Going forward, what do we expect from a Biden administration? And we'll get into the details in a little bit, but uh, what has Joe Biden said about trade? What is the Democratic general sentiment about free trade right now? Well, the, the sentiment of uh, the, the Democratic voters, for, for what it's worth, seems to be much more positive about, about trade than it used to be. Maybe that's just a reaction to Trump. Maybe they've been reading Cato policy papers. I, I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't know how strongly held that is. I don't think it's the deciding issue for most Democratic voters. But nonetheless, that, that's a positive. Um, Democratic politicians are, are more split. And I think, you know, you see some sort of moderate pro-business type Democrats uh, who say very positive things about trade. I like the fact that Kamala Harris on the campaign trail said, I am not a protectionist Democrat. I love that quote. Uh, but it, uh, on the other hand, I mean, you do have the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing who were very skeptical about it. So I think what we're seeing in the Biden administration is sort of a negotiation about who gets to run trade policy and um, eagerly awaiting uh, you know, the, the, the staffing of the U.S. Trade Representative Office. We know the, the, the nominee, Catherine Tai, who I think has sort of been able to bridge the gap between the progressive critics and, and the moderate people, but I want to see it filled in a bit more. Um, Biden himself has been back and forth on this. Sometimes he votes for trade agreements. Sometimes he votes, votes against them. Uh, you know, it, he's, I don't think it's a, a driving issue for him. He's more practical about it. Uh, you know, just looking for good political outcomes for him. He's been critical of some of the things the Trump administration has done. He says he wants to work more with allies. So 
you know, hopefully that means we won't be imposing national security tariffs on Canadians and Europeans, which doesn't make any sense. At the same time, he talks a lot about Buy America ramping up um, this discriminatory procurement practice where we uh, buy, buy only from American companies, uh, not from foreign companies. So, you know, I think he's setting himself up to to sort of go you know either way on this, um, just looking for practical political outcomes. I think he's less ideological about trade than Trump, and that's good. He's less focused on it th th than Trump was, and that's probably good. Um, so I think we're, we're going to get sort of a mixed bag, some good or some bad, and, and we'll be trying to influence it along the way. All right, uh, Alex Narasta, uh, I think we need to give credit, if you want to call it that, to the Trump administration for at least some members of the Trump administration for how well they understood how immigration works in the United States and, and, and the, the levers with which they could uh, fiddle with uh, immigration policy in the United States. I, I would argue that at least uh, in, if, if there were one policy area where the Trump administration was most effective at executing on its goals, immigration was it. I think that's right. And there's two ways to take a look at it. You know, one is what Trump did to the legal immigration system. And the other one is what Trump did uh, through uh, the enforcement of our immigration laws against illegal immigrants. And I think when we take a look at those factors, we see that Trump overperformed on cutting legal immigration to the United States, overperformed relative to his initial goals. Uh, but in terms of enforcing immigration laws, he vastly underperformed on every metric that we have. So to give you an example, uh, the Trump administration, the second half of the fiscal year of 2020, uh, reduced the number of green cards issued compared to the last half of the fiscal year of the previous fiscal year by about 90%. Uh, that's in part due, of course, to the pandemic, but also just due to other restrictions that the president placed on the issuance of green cards and non-immigrant visas to foreigners that have nothing to do with the pandemic. Um, but when it comes to, say, the enforcement of America's immigration laws, the number of people deported from the United States in 2020 is the lowest that we have data from going back to 2003. And those are people deported from the interior of the United States. So to sum it up, really, Trump virtually ended legal immigration to the United States and has done almost nothing to reduce the number of illegal immigrants who are living inside of the country. Uh, as our former colleague, Dan Griswold, used to say, it's, uh, it's, it's appropriate to think of immigration the way we think about prohibition. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's sort of a ridiculous phrase when you think about once we take care of the bootleggers, then we can talk about legalizing alcohol. And of course, uh, you would argue that the same is true of immigration. Absolutely the same is true. And I also like to use the, the sort of more modern example of the income tax. You know, we had, I think, some fairly successful cuts in the income tax rate under the Trump administration. Now, imagine if a Trump official or maybe even a Democrat had said, we can't cut the personal income tax rate until we end all cheating on income tax forms in the United States. Um, of course, those of us who favor tax cuts would laugh that out of the room and think that that was ridiculous. But uh, that is essentially the argument that has been made for years, 
by immigration restrictionists is that we cannot have an expansion of the legal immigration system until we get perfect enforcement of our immigration rules, which is essentially just a way to say we are never, ever going to expand lawful immigration. What has happened to public sentiment about immigration and toward immigrants over the last four or five years? So we've seen a continuation of the trend where on polls that go back to the 1960s that ask three questions. They ask, do you want about the same level of immigration, more immigration, or less? And we've seen a trend since the mid-1990s of the number of people who want more immigration increasing, the number of those who want less going down, well, those who want the same are basically staying the same. And so what we've seen is the last year of the Trump administration is the first time in that poll's history where the number of people who want more immigration to the United States is greater than the number of people who want less immigration to the United States. Now, Trump, I think, could take some credit for that change in a pro-immigration direction, but these are trends that were uh, going in this direction for the last 25 to 30 years. So uh, even there, if he wanted to take credit for that change in public opinion, I don't think it would be accurate. Okay. So uh, two, at least in, in your case, in immigration, a longstanding trend toward uh, a greater favorability toward uh, immigration. We may be able to give a little bit of credit to the Trump administration for uh, making immigrants more sympathetic. Uh, and uh, Simon, on trade, we have seen a fairly recent swing. In fact, if I understand it correctly, the the numbers almost reversed themselves uh, with respect to Democrats and Republicans and their support for free trade. Is that about right? I think it's about right. I think there are a number of different polls out there and they ask questions differently, so it's hard to say. But there are definitely some polls I've seen that, that suggest that that sort of as Trump came in and started criticizing trade, Democrats said, hey, we like it. Um, and in contrast, Republicans said, yeah, we're, we're a little skeptical now. Okay. So uh, with respect to trade, uh, we should expect the Biden administration uh, to be more friendly toward it. But of course, uh, Congress is also will be run by uh, Democrats, as we recently learned. So uh, do we have a sense about what the specific uh, problems that we see with trying to get trade uh, expanded uh, that Democrats object to? I think that Democrats, first of all, have a, a political problem with trade, and, and they're just not going to want you know, issues that divide them uh, to, to be high on the agenda. So you know, Democrat leadership's just not going to want to have to force um, votes on something like a trade agreement. So, so I, I think that's one difficulty. I think that um, there are Democrats who are, are pro-trade and uh, will be looking for ways to, to do some um, positive trade agenda. I think what they'll tie it to, though, is tough enforcement of, of labor rights and probably environmental protection as well. So in the renegotiated NAFTA, there were these fancy new innovative provisions that, you know, personally, I'm skeptical of, but I mean, they're real and I have to sort of analyze them as, as a policy analyst that, that allow for, you know, rigorous enforcement of, of um, you know, factory practices uh, down in Mexico. And, and I can see um, Democrats in Congress and in the Biden administration saying this is, you know, this is what we want to do on our trade. This is our positive trade policy is enforcing these the labor rights we came up with in this trade agreement. Now, hopefully, along with that, um, we can do some actual trade liberalizing things. 
Um, you know, there are these special uh, lower tariffs for with, for trade with developing countries that expired at the end of 2020. And I, I, I know there are Democrats who would like to bring those back, although they want to attach other sort of labor and gender rights conditions to them. Um, so I, I think that, that there are there are good pro-trade Democrats. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I hope that they are able to to push some sort of positive agenda, but that they'll they'll there will be pushback. Um, from other anti-trade Democrats, and there will just be sort of political leaders who say, we don't want to have to deal with this right now, you know, and, and obviously we've got some big problems going on right now, pandemic. Uh, so, so I, 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 yeah, we will get to trade at some point. It may take a little while. Are the close divisions in the House and Senate, are those productive for trade? That is to say, is the steady state middle ground uh, on trade deals, is that generally positive or does it mean that trade deals end up being a Christmas tree? Yeah. You know, normally I, I would say, yeah, maybe this is helpful because we'll get a bunch of Republicans on board. We'll, we'll find the minority of Democrats and the majority of Republicans who can push forward a positive trade agenda. But I don't know where the Republican Party is on trade right now. You know, there, there are still some pro-traders there, but they're kind of quiet about it and, and they don't want to aggravate Trump and, and his uh, supporters and his base. So I just, yeah, I, 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 I normally I would say this close division might work in, in favor of it. But, but right now you have Democrats who are wary of it. Your Republicans are wary of it. Wary of it. You know, nobody's going to be jumping into a, you know, an expansive trade agenda as far as I can see. Uh, Alex Narasta, as the I guess you'd call it the fever breaks from the Trump years for Republicans. What does that mean for immigration going forward? Well, that really is the $64,000 question. Democrats have talked about immigration positively for a long time. And during the four years of the Trump administration, um, they opposed the president's policies um, from conception to completion. And the polling shows that Democrats are very supportive of le expanding legal immigration and reducing enforcement. But Democrats do have a history of not taking this issue nearly as seriously as we wish they did. Um, however, they have faced a lot of pushback from activists for the last 10 years or so, so um, basically saying you need to take this seriously, you need to expand legal immigration, you need to legalize unlawful immigrants. So I do think there is a very good chance in the first two years of this administration, there is going to be a serious push in Congress to pass some kind of immigration reform bill or a series of bills attacking different portions of the system that need reform. I think these bills will be fairly moderate because the Senate is 50-50. Um, and the tiebreaker vote is basically going to be um, you know, Joe Manchin, the moderate Republican, uh, moderate Democrat from West Virginia. Um, so, and they need to get, you know, 10 Dem Republicans on board. Um, the chance of them getting 10 Republicans on board, I think is fairly slim, but if they are, it's going to be with a moderate, uh, very moderate pieces of legislation. What is interesting is the biggest sort of change in the organization of immigration policy under Trump was that now the president has vastly more powers over immigration than he ever has before. If we all recall the sort of Trump Muslim ban that was put in place early in his administration, uh, based done entirely by executive action, executive order on his part, um, that was challenged and the Supreme Court ruled in 2018 in the case of Trump v. Hawaii, that basically the president can stop any immigration at any time. Um, and he basically can give any reason he wants without any kind of evidence. So he has to say the magic words of national security. 
uh, but in practice, that could mean anything he wants. Um, so right now we have a situation where the president can stop anything he wants, but his powers to liberalize, his powers to let people in are uh, more questionable constitutionally. I don't think we're going to get a test of this because Joe Biden is a moderate on this issue as he is on basically every other issue. He's sort of middle of the road. He's practical. Um, he appeals to the median voter, which is why he won the election so handily. Um, it, it, so I, I don't expect any radical actions from President Biden. I think he is going to spend a lot of his time undoing the roughly 450 executive actions on immigration that were put forward by the Trump administration. And the one thing we know about the courts is they may give the, the president enormous leverage in blocking legal immigration from coming in. But if you want to undo or issue an executive order affecting immigration, especially of those people inside of the United States, the government does need to give good reasons. It does need to follow the uh, Administrative Administrative Procedures Act. It has to make sure that it checks all these bureaucratic boxes and does it properly. What saved us during the first two years of the Trump administration is that his administration was shockingly incompetent legally, and they got a lot of their executive orders thrown out because they didn't do that properly. I think Biden administration is going to be more competent in that way, but it's still going to take them years to repeal these re uh, restrictions and regulations put in place. And I think, frankly, due to some of the labor market protectionists in the Democratic Party, like Bernie Sanders and others, they'll try to keep a few of them still on the books that prevent, say, the migration of some temporary workers to the United States. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, famously called open borders a Koch brothers idea, which I know pleased Alex enormously. Uh, but, uh, you know, even even Bernie Sanders in the campaign of 2020 kind of changed that view a little bit, at least was not uh, what, what he wasn't making opposition to broad immigration a cornerstone of his campaign. That's right. So what we've seen, I think, is a, a huge change in the Democratic Party. It really began sort of around 2006, 2007, 2008. And it's basically complete now where Democrats went from being like Republicans on immigration, which is about half of them liked it, half of them didn't, uh, to now being where north of 80% of Democrats like immigration and want it to be liberalized. So what we've seen that reflected in is Bernie Sanders is very supportive of, say, legalizing unauthorized immigrants who are here, reducing enforcement along the border, and has said some things uh, supportive of uh, legal immigration in the green card categories. However, he is still very much opposed to temporary guest worker visa programs. Those are the only systems in the United States that allow low-skilled workers to come in and work here legally, uh, even though it's only temporary, but legally, even though they don't have family members who are here. So he's, I think, more protectionist than your typical Democrat is when it comes to legal immigration. But the Bernie Sanders of today is basically like the average Democrat of 10 years ago, whereas 10 years ago, he was much more like the average Republican today. <laughs> I would need a flowchart to understand that uh, clearly. But on, uh, you know, these are related issues. Uh, trade and immigration are are strongly related. If the United States doesn't want to produce certain things here, we have to look overseas. And so Donald Trump did uh, something interesting, which is he made sort of an ideological 
case or at least a national security case for doing restrictions in both policy areas. Is there a case to be made? And and how would you make that case to, uh, to for uh, the, the Biden administration or members of Congress that they could latch onto and say, oh, no, we need more liberal trade and we need more liberal immigration? Simon? <laughs> So, you know, there, there's this sort of general case to be made um, due to the public, people who are, you know, maybe you haven't heard the, these arguments before. But when you talk about the case to the Biden administration, well, th there I'm going to get a little more political and, and practical with you. Um, I could get more theoretical if, if you want instead. But so, you know, with these national security tariffs that that, that the Trump administration imposed on steel and aluminum imports from, from Canada and Mexico, those have now been removed, but on the European Union and, and Japan, um, I mean, I think that the argument to the, the Biden administration is these are our allies. You know, we, we we engage in all kinds of, you know, sort of military activities with them. We are fighting for them. They are fighting for us. Um, you know, it just doesn't make sense to, you know, poke them in the eye like this and and, and make the argument that their the imports from them are somehow a, a threat to us. So in order to restore relations with them, and in order to work with them on the the real national security threats, and there are some, um, so you know we can. You know, and China is the obvious answer here, and we can get into that more. You know, you, you've got to you, you've got to throw out these ridiculous national security arguments that were made here. Now, I mean, there are legitimate cases, I'm sure, where you know some import from some country uh, undermines U.S. national security, but this just wasn't it. Um, you know, unfortunately, the statute that, that allowed the, the Trump administration to impose these tariffs was vague enough that they didn't really need a good reason. Um, they could just kind of do it and, and sort of, you know, even if even if the Defense Department didn't agree, they could still the Commerce Department could still say, well, you know, these imports uh, impair our national security. So we're going to impose the tariffs. So so I mean, the argument is just you know, to the Biden administration. Again, Biden's sort of a practical political person, sort of practically and politically. Um, these un these tariffs undermine U.S. interests, uh, economic interests, political interests, international relations, national security interests. Um, so, so please think about removing them. The problem they're going to have is once you put a tariff in place, then you have vested interests who want to keep it. And so they're already getting lobbied by the steel industry and the steel industry labor union saying, hey, you got to keep these tariffs in place. So, you know, I hope they can push back against those arguments. I hope they can find something else maybe to give those interest groups instead. Uh, but it's it's going to be a fight. It sounds like a no brainer, uh, but I think it will be a challenge for the Biden administration to do what I think is pretty, pretty obviously the right policy. Alex, there's really no good national security case for restricting immigration and plenty of good of reasons to expand immigration to bolster American national security. The two main arguments used during the Trump administration are that uh, immigrants, predominantly those from Muslim countries, pose a significant terrorist risk risk on American soil. What we've seen uh, looking at the evidence is going back to 1975, the annual chance of being murdered by a foreign born person in a terrorist attack on US soil is about one in one, 3.8 million per year, which is a very small chance. Um, it's positive, of course, and the government does have the power and should have the power to try to restrict individual immigrants who it thinks are national security risks. The other reason is fear of espionage committed by primarily Chinese immigrants on U.S. soil. What's interesting is the Department of Justice has been 
taking a look at this in detail since 2017, I believe, in the DOJ's uh, China initiative and the cases that they have found of individual Chinese immigrants committing espionage are frankly um, should not cause anybody hardly any worry at all. Yesterday, there was an arrest of a uh, Chinese national uh, who has Chinese citizenship uh, and had had become an American citizen, uh, an MIT professor. um, And he was accused, uh, lumped into this category of being a spy for China. The charges against him were basically lying on his income tax forms, having a foreign bank account without filling out the right forms and not telling people that he was affiliated with a Chinese university in some ways. Now, for somebody like me, I grew up thinking of espionage and spies as people like James Bond. This guy was not James Bond. He was obviously not a serious spy. Otherwise, they would have actually charged him with espionage of some kind or some kind. And the government loves to do that whenever they get the chance to show that they're taking this seriously. The fact that this individual, uh, Gang Chen, as well as the other folks in the DOJ that have been captured by the DOJ China Initiative are overwhelmingly charged with non-espionage offenses, tells me that this fear of Chinese espionage is vastly overblown and the evidence that there is a big problem from Chinese nationals on U.S. soil conducting espionage is a lot smaller than they think. Those have been the two primary justifications and there frankly is just not much good evidence uh, for restricting immigration. On the other hand, Allowing in talented, skilled foreigners from potential adversaries like China to come to the United States and build our economy and start firms here and to add to our national production is a much more positive way um, to bolster our national security than locking them out. My favorite example of this is the Chinese rocket scientist, Qian Shusen who came to the United States in the 1930s, worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, early on and basically developed America's uh, medium-range ballistic missiles. He was accused of being a communist without any evidence. Um, As a result, he lost all of his jobs, and he was going to return to Mao's China because he was locked out of all opportunities in the United States. The U.S. detained him and eventually deported him to communist China, where he built their entire missile program from scratch. So this is a situation where American security laws in combination with immigration restrictions gave communist China um, a decade's lead on the development of missiles that they otherwise would not have had. It would have been much better for everybody if Qian Shusin had stayed here, but instead we had to force him out due to security paranoia. Another thing that links these two issues, trade and immigration, is that over decades, Congress has given so much power to the executive branch uh, for to make all sorts of all manner of changes uh, without congressional approval. And so, if Joe Biden were serious and wanted to make a, make this a priority and wanted to. Uh, reassure perhaps Democrats and maybe even the rest of the country that, you know, the next guy who gets in here might not be so favorable to the policies that we want. Maybe it is time to claw back some of those powers uh, to make changes to trade and immigration, send those powers back to Congress. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, a very you know, sensible uh, idea in, in the area of trade. There are the, the various statutes where Congress has delegated its power 
over tariffs and trade to the executive branch. And for, for years, it, that, that power just sort of lingered there, maybe used, maybe not used, uh, you know, it kind of varied over the years. But then the Trump administration sort of, you know, took it to the, the next level and said, well, we're, we're going to use all of it uh, to, to the maximum. And, you know, there, there's been a, a push among sort of policy folks and among some members of Congress to, to you know, put a, put a check on uh, on executive action here. So you know, maybe before the president imposes a tariff under one of these statutes, let's have Congress approve it, you know, get a formal approval from Congress, ideas like that. And, and they all make sense. But you just you think about what does Congress have the appetite for now, now that Trump is gone? Um, you know, I have trouble seeing somebody, you know, getting that issue and, and putting it at the top of, of the agenda, because, you know, obviously we've got the pandemic. We might have another impeachment trial. We've, we've got the uh, an economy crater. There's so many things going on. So, you know, this is one of these sensible we should do it issues that you know, my best guess is it just won't happen. Um, and it may be that we don't get another President Trump uh, anytime soon. So it doesn't matter that much. It may be that we get another President Trump in 2024 and then we'll have wished we had done it. So so there are plenty of sensible proposals out there. There are members of Congress who are aware of this. Um, but it just given everything that's going on, I, I have trouble seeing how that gets to the top of the agenda. That won't stop, you know, people like like me and others in our trade policy center from from making the case for it and sort of reminding people of it. But but realistically, I just I just don't know that we're going to see these changes happen. Okay, Alex, we've heard from Debbie Downer over here. Give me some uh, little some comfort. Yeah, I wish I could. Uh, so the uh, <laughs> Democrats in the Congress, to their credit, recognize this problem after the Trump Muslim ban. So they introduced a bill called the No Ban Act, which would have restricted the power of the president to stop legal immigration on the basis of like nationality, religion, uh, race, uh, and also subject to congressional approval for any bans that he does put in place. Um, that hasn't become law, obviously, hasn't passed Congress. Um, I don't think it's going to become law in the next Congress. I think the steam uh, or the, the wind behind that bill has been has been stopped by the election of uh, President Biden. I think you are not going to see many restrictions on the power of the president to reduce immigration, unfortunately. Uh, I think that would be the number one long-term change if we want to think about systemic problems with the organization of our government would be to reduce the power of the president in every sphere of policy. Unfortunately, the incentives that Congress have are to get elected. And their incentive to get elected uh, basically pushes them to give all the powers to the president possible so that they can take credit for good things that happen and blame the president when bad things happen. And there has been no change to our government or its organization or our constitution to reduce that incentive. So I basically predict that there will be no successful piece of legislation to reduce the power of the president in the next Congress. All right. Well, can't say I didn't try. Simon Lester is associate director of Cato's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Alex Durasta directs immigration studies at the Cato Institute. Alex is also co-author of the new book with Benjamin Powell, Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. And of course, you can follow all of these issues at our website, cato.org. There are a few ways to achieve what's known as full employment. One would be a radical reduction in the regulations that keep productive people on the sidelines. 
Another is government intervention to nudge people this way or that. Cato's Ryan Bourne on the Cato Daily Podcast discussed how the Biden administration is likely to move to achieve full employment. Whenever we uh, talk about full employment as an economic goal, uh, it gets my hackles up just a little bit because uh, it just that that very goal itself would seem to justify or provide a justification, uh, often among others, for all manner of economic interventions. So uh, how do the people advising and the people who are likely to continue advising uh, President-elect Joe Biden, uh, you know, where are they on this notion of full employment? Well, thanks, Caleb. It's really interesting. When uh, Joe Biden's team of Council of Economic Advisors was appointed a couple of weeks ago now, um, the overwhelming reaction from progressive commentators and economists was to say that it was great news that Biden had chosen those particular candidates because they were committed to this concept of full employment. Now, that concept can be a bit of a minefield if you approach it as a non-economist, because to the unattuned ear, when you hear the term full employment, uh, people think that means a situation where everyone is working, or perhaps um, a situation where everybody who wants a job or, or to be working a certain number of hours they desire is able to do so. Um, actually, what economists mean when they talk about full employment is something a little different. It really means a situation when um, unemployment uh, is at what we describe as its natural rate. That means when the economy is operating at full tilt, um, we're fulfilling all our realistic potential. Um, it's the unemployment rate that would result if uh, the only people out of work were those between jobs at the time or those who um, will find it near impossible to get jobs anyway, perhaps because of um, changing technologies. So there's a difference in the concept between um, how you might think that it should be defined and how economists define it. Now, um, Joe Biden has appointed um, three people to the Council of Economic Advisors, um, and all three have a history in labor market economics. And uh, one of them, Jared Bernstein in particular, has been a big pro proponent of uh, full employment as a, as a goal of government. Um, and that's significant for a couple of reasons. So the first is, if you aim for full employment uh, as a goal, um, saying that you aim for full employment um, after 2019, when we were close to what economists might describe as full employment, suggests that you kind of want to try to achieve this objective uh, in a different way. So in 2019, we pretty much got to full employment um, through a combination of having very, very liberal labor markets. Um, we just had a big tax cut. Um, there was uh, much less in the way of regulation over the first couple of years of, uh, of Trump's term. Um, but in saying, you know, you're a proponent of full employment and putting yourself in contrast to that, you're really saying that um, you want to achieve a goal of uh, as low unemployment as possible through different means. So it's a kind of commitment for a much more interventionist um, agenda. Um, and second and related to that is Bernstein and others have kind of implied that even when we had very, very low unemployment back in 2019, uh, we were still a long way from full employment. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, he seems to think that there are a lot of people who are underemployed, who um, would like to work more hours, and that if we ran the economy even hotter, um, we could draw people currently out of the labor force back into it. So the big takeaway is, I think, amongst Biden's CEA picks, um, there's a big commitment for running macroeconomic policy very hot to try and reduce unemployment um, as far as possible and more of a commitment to use government and government tools to try to put people who are out of work into work. What does that look like practically? Do we have ideas from the incoming administration about what kind of interventions would be necessary to get there? Yeah, and I think this is a good place to contrast kind of how a libertarian might approach this with how uh, Biden's team might. So if you're somebody on um, with a libertarian kind of free market view of the world, you might say, okay, we got a, a low level of unemployment in 2019, but it could have been lower um, if only governments didn't do things like gum up labor markets through um, minimum wage laws, um, provision of unemployment insurance, uh, b bad uh, local and, and state level land use policies that prevent housing being built where people want to move to. If you if you sold all, all of those problems and, and dragged away all those interventions, the natural rate of unemployment would be lower. And so more people would be in work when the economy was running at its full potential. And I think it's better to say that Biden's uh, team don't subscribe to that view. What they tend to mean when they're talking about uh, full employment is, is two different things. So on the structural side, uh, quite often they propose things like childcare subsidies to try and encourage more uh, parents into the labor market or active government efforts to try to uh, help workers um, who are long-term unemployed retrain. So kind of quite activists on the structural side of things. Um, and then at the same time, they suggest a much more activist um, fiscal policy, running bigger deficits through government spending more to try to uh, create jobs through um, direct government projects, um, public works programs, or subsidies for jobs. Now, the problem with this from a kind of more free market perspective is that you can always create employment if you chuck money at things if you, uh, you know, the Milton Freeman's famous example is if you gave uh, construction workers spoons instead of shovels, you could create a whole hell of a lot more jobs because it would be much more difficult um, for, for, for any given worker to contribute to building something like a canal. So you can always create jobs. What markets are incredibly good at, however, is creating jobs that serve our wants and needs. And uh, they're a a tool, a component that is used in a process of wealth creation. So to kind of summarize all that again, um, Joe Biden's team, I think, would be looking to try to reduce the natural rate of unemployment by um, subsidizing various activities, childcare and retraining efforts, whilst at the same time thinking that um, government spending can be used to get the economy as close as possible to its full potential, including uh, in extremists, um, potentially even considering the government um, directly hiring workers on public work projects. Now, when you talk about uh, libertarian solutions to lowering uh, or uh, efforts to lower the natural rate of unemployment, 
Um, I remember the Obama administration, uh, maybe four or five years ago, five years ago at least, um, put out a report on occupational licensing saying, look, there are significant costs here to, uh, in particular, low-income workers. So this, this, I, that, at least that idea has not been off the radar of Democrats. That's right. And actually, um, there are certain areas where Democrats have quite promising views uh, that could improve the labor market. So one of them is the one that you mentioned there is occupational licensing reform. And the second is um, uh, land use and zoning reform, which uh, if we had that, at a local at local level, um, enabling the building of more houses in places where people wanted to want to live, which tends to be places that are, are growing and, and creating job opportunities, uh, then that could actually help lower the natural rate. The problem with both of those, of course, is that um, they are primarily issues which are delivered at state level, um, and so it's quite difficult to see. Um, other than kind of talking about them and and, and uh, raising awareness of the problems that they cause, um, what could be done at a federal level, White House level about dealing with those problems? Right, but the uh, I can remember the Biden campaign spoke, uh, you know, approvingly of ending subsidies to localities that have an overwhelming amount of single-family home zoning. This was, of course, laughably derided by the president of the United States as an effort to destroy the suburbs, which is a tad unfair. But are you suggesting then that these advisors don't have these kinds of reforms on their radar? Well, the role of the CEA, which is what we're talking about, uh, I was talking about here in terms of the appointments. So uh, the CEA is really a kind of mini think tank that operates within the White House. It was uh, founded in legislation immediately after the Second World War. Um, and, and their job is to provide the president with kind of up-to-date information about how the economy is doing to help um, uh, kind of analyze particular uh, policies, but they don't develop policies as such. So the CEA actually in this instance could, could do useful work in terms of um, analyzing the costs of occupational licensing and, and zoning and uh, land use planning laws and, and of course suggest to the president and you're right on the margins um, some federal grants um, to states um, could incorporate conditionality that would push in the direction of um, reform particularly on on zoning laws but the CEA itself doesn't have the power to kind of create policy it's there as a, a kind of mini think tank and I think I'm I think I'm fairly categorizing and thank you for pushing back because there are um, you're right, there are a few areas where Democrats in the past, in the Obama administration, have favored um, liberalizations that would help lower the natural rate. But I think when you listen to what the CEA appointees are saying, uh, Cecilia Rouse, who was at Princeton, Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the Center on, on Budget and Policy Priorities, and uh, Heather Bauschi from the Washington Center of Equitable Growth, when you listen to what they're saying, and when you read many of the things that have animated them over the past four years, they do tend to push in the direction of a more interventionist agenda on the labor market. Indeed, in some areas, uh, things that one would imagine might actually raise the natural rate of unemployment. All three, I believe, are in favor of a $15 minimum wage, for example.
now former President Donald Trump showed excitement about the newly created Space Force Division of the military, so is it worth the hype? Robert Farley is a senior lecturer at the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce at the University of Kentucky and author of the Cato paper Space Force, ahead of its time or dreadfully premature. He spoke with Cato's John Glazer on the Power Problems podcast. Space as a domain of military competition is not a particularly new concept, is it? No, it's not. Um, uh, so the militaries of the world have been have been thinking consequentially about space, um, really sort of almost uh, shortly after they started thinking really seriously about air. Um, it's really in, the, of course, the 1940s that uh, you see uh, militaries using space as a transit point, right? So as a place where you send something and arrives in a different place. And this is a missile, like a, a ballistic missile, like the Germans use in um, uh, at the later stages of World War II, and so the notion that there was sort of this, uh, for lack of a better word, empty space out there that could be used as a transit point to attack targets was obvious by the 1940s, and then by the 1950s, uh, in both the Soviet Union and the United States, there's an increasing understanding that um, space is going to be useful not just as something to th- send things through, um, but as somewhere you can have a persistent presence um, that then you know can potentially have transformative effects um, in terms of your ability to uh, do reconnaissance, do surveillance, but also in terms of your ability to communicate. So um, a lot of the basic parameters of how space are gonna, is, is used today are going to be set by the 1950s. And speaking of that period, there was talk back in the Cold War of the kind of space race really being about national prestige or status. And you do make mention of that in the paper. I wanted you to expand on that a little bit. Is that the case this time around too? So it does not feel, it, it does feel like we have, uh, we're having a consequentially different use of space by the major powers now than we did in uh, the 1960s. I I mean, I don't think there's any question that uh, for the Soviet Union and the United States in particular, um, in the 1950s and 1960s and into the 1970s, um, there is very much a national prestige aspect to uh, what the countries are doing, right? Um, There's not really really any military reason to do things like uh, the Apollo project. Um, There's not much military reason um, to do a lot of the other stuff um, that we do in the early stages and the mid stages of the Cold War in space. Um, Now, that stuff is also connected with all of the genuine and real military applications um, that are being worked out um, for the use of space for military purposes, right? So it's not as if um, you're working at orthogonal purposes or conflictive purposes with the civilian prestige-oriented space program, because a lot of the technologies that are being developed along the way are dual use. They can be used on either side. Um, But what we have now um, in terms of countries thinking about the militarization of space feels consequentially different than it did in the 50s and 60s, where there was much more of this space exploration aspect, you know, planting a flag here, there, or somewhere else, right? This, in, in, in a way, that the competition has really matured in a military sense. I'm kind of curious about how the organization for this would be planned. You made reference to the fact that different areas of the military do engage in in space as an area. And so how would that work out with a separate space force uh, working with all these other departments? And plus, it's also the case you mentioned in the paper, and this might be relevant as well, just how big uh, a part 
space actually plays in normal life, in our commercial lives and connecting us to people and so on. How is such a thing organized? How can such a thing be envisioned to manage space uh, in, in, as a military domain? So those are three or four really big questions. Um, <laughs> and so I guess um, I will start by making a uh, parallel that a lot of people have made, right? Which is this parallel um, to the founding of the United States Air Force um, and its analogous institutions in, in places like Britain with the Royal Air Force um, and elsewhere. Um, you know, in terms of what the military uh, does in space and what different military organizations uh, do in space, I do not think that it is an exaggeration to say that um, space is absolutely now intrinsically and critically important to everything that every branch of the military does on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, and this is largely because uh, the modern United States military, and, and perhaps somewhat less so in less advanced military organizations, but um, but you know even as we're seeing right now in Azerbaijan and Armenia, we have very space-centric um, uh, conflicts going on, even in a relatively low-level conflict. But the uh, United States military now is deeply dependent uh, on space assets for communication between sort of every uh, different from down to the individual infantrymen up to the F-35, up to um, aircraft carriers and everything else. Um, to keep them in communication with one another, right? Um, I mean, information, in a sense, is now the currency of military power, information about targets, information about capabilities, and space is absolutely fundamental to the transfer of that information, right? So that an infantryman on one part of the front can communicate with a uh, an aircraft or a submarine 800 miles away and can deliver an effect, right? A missile or something else. Um, and so that communication is absolutely critical to what the U.S. military does. And the other component of this that space provides, that space is really just uh, indispensable for, um, is surveillance. So uh, space assets are not the only assets that uh, the military uses for surveillance, but they're a pretty important part um, of the surveillance picture. And that allows commanders to know where they are, to know where the enemy is, to know what sort of um, effects need to be delivered against what sort of targets. Right? And so all of that is so tightly built into how the military operates today in Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, Navy, um, that it's very, very difficult to really sort of imagine how you would extricate space, how you would take space out because all the services use it so much. So, and I think we can come back to this in a bit, but uh, I also wanted to address your other question. Um, you know, why why has this then become so sort of commercially important? Why is it so important to industry and to, um, uh, you know, the economy more generally? Um, you know, for the same reasons that the military uh, uh, uses space for communications and for data acquisition and so forth, um, these kinds of things have become critical to how industry functions in terms of being able to transfer huge amounts of data uh, real time in a relatively easy manner enables a uh, sort of a degree of supply chain diversification, you know, global supply chain diversification, um, diversi diversification of sources, discovery of sources, connections with the market, um, right, an understanding of what's going on real time in the market that, you know, to an extent, the sinews of modern capitalism and the way that capitalism has functioned over the past 25, 35 years, um, we have to absolutely credit to 
sort of human management of space, right, in terms of putting up a communications infrastructure in space that enables folks in Chicago to talk to people in Beijing about the assets that they have in Jakarta, which, uh, you know, are then dependent upon something else that's going on offshore, but you have, you can talk to the fisherman who's dealing with the problem, right? Um, and so that, sort of the economic gains that come from that are, I think, pretty critical to what we understand as our economy today. So space is, it's not only the foundation now of military power, it's also the foundation of commercial prosperity. I know it's very difficult to tell because this is uh, an organization that is not yet fully up and running, but is there any sense, uh, projections or estimates of how much Space Force might cost? There are some projections um, with respect to cost, but it's it's the reason that the uh, projections are difficult uh, at this point um, is because, uh, at least thus far, space has not by and large, um, been about creating new capabilities. It has been about rearranging capabilities that were already um, in the military um, and that were uh, uh, already mostly in the United States Air Force, right? So Space Force is sort of literally um, a pre-existing organization that um, was within the United States Air Force um, and that, you know, thus far, and this will probably change in uh, the next few years, but um, thus far remains very heavily uh, connected to uh, the United States Air Force. And so the main costs that we're seeing so far um, and the changes in costs are basically the costs that come with any major reorganization. Um, and that is sort of the movement of personnel, the creation of new personnel systems, the creation of new recruitment systems, and so forth. Um, I think that it is going to be a while before we can really get a sort of strong set of cost estimates about what are the costs of Space Force going to be above and beyond what the costs of having Space Command within uh, the United States Air Force were. Um, but I would add, and this is you know part of the piece here, part of part of part of what I wrote is that. We just don't have answers yet to many of the critical questions that um, we should have grappled with before we created this service. Um, and this cost issue is really one of them, right? Um, we, we don't we don't know yet um, what kind of capabilities Space Force is going to create um, and how those capabilities are going to be paid for above and beyond um, what the military otherwise would have done. I mean, Space Force is really, really small, and so the immediate above-board costs aren't that high. The question is, is it something that's going to produce major cost increases over the next two decades as it becomes uh, a more settled, more mature force? Right, because establishing a new bureaucracy means creating a whole new set of internal incentives that can influence policy and the allocation of resources uh, in a kind of parochial way rather than simply solid, straightforward, you know, sort of strategic needs. Um, do you envision problems uh, arising out of that kind of uh, problem? Yeah. So um, if the... Uh experience of the United States Air Force um, is of any utility in evaluating how the Space Force is going to play out, um, then we can anticipate that there are going to be inter-service conflict problems. And inter-service conflict is when there are different services that conflict um, with one another. Um, 
you know, back in the day when it was the Air Force becoming in, independent, um, the problems that were generated between the Air Force on the one hand and either the Army or the Navy on the other hand were driven largely by this question of uh, what do we use the air for, right? Do we use it to support land objectives? Do we use it to support naval objectives? Or does it go and do its own thing? Um, and a lot of the early stories of conflict um, are, you know, basically that the Army is saying quite reasonably, well, we need airplanes, and the Navy is saying we need airplanes, um, and the Air Force is saying we need to use either airplanes for other things. And this is where the Space Force starts stepping into really dangerous ground, because you know, what we already talked about in terms of space really being the foundation of what the Army does and the Marines and everyone else do means that um, you have some uh, ready-to-brew conflicts um, as Space Force matures, as it gets to uh, sort of select its own mission, um, to recruit its own personnel and pursue, um, build its own culture, pursue its own objectives. Um, you get some ready-made conflicts between the military organizations that are already dependent upon the use of space um, and what Space Force will want to do in terms of its own, uh, its own thing. Um, and this problem is probably even more acute uh, than the problem with the Air Force was. Um, because, you know, while everybody needs air power, um, uh, you can also envision situations where air power can go and act independently. What's odd about Space Force is there has been very little discussion thus far um, about how to make any kind of trade-off with respect to, you know, what we might call intrinsic space missions and the general let's support um, the rest of the armed forces, let's do what we've been using space for, and let's ensure that we can continue to do what we've been using space for. Um, there's a lot of people worried about this. There's a lot of people saying we shouldn't be worried about this. Um, and so that probably means it's a good idea to worry about this in terms of um, you know, straightforward use of military power. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you think this might impact international relations more generally? Does it increase the risk of conflict? Does it kind of initiate uh, greater uh, incentive to compete in space, but, you know, with other great powers? Um, does it impact norm creation or the ability of, say, some leading states to get together and uh, establish treaties that might impose and encourage restraint when it comes to using the military in space and so on. Yeah, so that's, I mean, this is sort of a, I guess, it's kind of a three-part question, and so I'll do my best to answer it in sort of a general order. Um, the United States is not the only country to be doing uh, reorganizations of their space capabilities right now. Um, the French have uh, created what is not quite, but fairly close to Space Force. Um, the Russians have something which, you know, again, it's not organizationally identical to Space Force, but it, it handles many of the same problems. Um, the Chinese have an institution or organization which is not really like Space Force at all, but it does handle um, a lot of space-oriented problems. Um, and so... While not many other countries have really sort of gone the independent service route that we've gone, um, all of them, or not all of them, but but most of the major powers are thinking seriously about uh, militarization of space. Um, and I mean, they've been thinking this way for, for five or 10 years, right? So it would be wrong to say that Space Force is triggering, at least right now, some kind of race in space capabilities, right? Everything that's happening right now in China and Russia and India is something that was is well within what we projected people would be doing 10 or 15 years ago, right? So it's not, not transformative in that sense. 
Now, moving forward, it might be, right? Because, I mean, there is um, a precedent for countries to look at, say, the United States for, for cues as to what their military organizations should look like. And we might see other countries forming something that looks like a space force because the United States has done it. In terms of generating things like arms races or crisis instability, there is a concern. Right there um, is a concern because arms races uh, are often very service specific, um, and we can think about this in terms of uh, sort of the great naval races of the 20th century, um, both after World War One uh, and before World War One. Um, we can think about this in terms of the nuclear arms race, the bomber race during the Cold War. Um, the incentives for services uh, are very often are to look at their counterparts on the other side and to then build capabilities intended to dominate um, those counterparts. And so we, we can envision the potential for some spirals um, down the road when we have sort of a clearer picture of, of what offensive missions by Space Force might look like. I mean, right now we have very little very little data or anything like that right now. Um, but I would say that on balance, the creation of Space Force probably makes it more likely that we will see something like arms race dynamics at some point with China or with Russia. Um, that's not a certainty, but it's certainly a possibility and more of a possibility, I think, with Space Force. The freedom to explore and exchange, whether it's goods, ideas, or people, has led to stunning achievements in science, technology, and culture. As a result, we live at a time of unprecedented wealth and opportunity. So why would we choose something else? Johan Norberg explores all of this in his new book, Open, The Story of Human Progress. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. Do you think that there is this disconnect between people's ability or desire to have the products of openness and their sense that openness means bad things for for them, for their incomes, for their families. Yes, I think there's a disconnect there that explains a lot of the disarray we're in when it comes to the political discourse. We like, we love, and we depend on all the goods and the services and the knowledge that we're getting from openness. Uh, it's all a result of cooperation. Even getting just a cup of coffee in your cup every morning is dependent on, on the work of uh, tens of thousands of, of, of people cooperating. Uh, but we take that for granted. We've got those things and we rarely think about the incredible difficulty in uh, coming up with all these cooperations, uh, but we immediately think of all the problems that any kind of openness, any kind of import from another place creates, because it's it's what uh, Frederick Bastiat once upon a time talked about as what is seen and what is not seen. What is not seen is the um, reduction in prices, the increased purchasing power, the access to goods and services that we we have everywhere because it's in our wardrobes, it's in our computer, it's on, in our refrigerators. We not do not connect that instantly to uh, free trade. But we do whenever a factory has to uh, be um, closed down because we suddenly get com competition from another place. So 
whenever something is dispersed in time and geography, it's very difficult to uh, go through all the processes, all the uh, connections that made it possible. And that's why we need um, economic science. That's why we need uh, uh, books and lectures constantly reminding us of that. Otherwise, we only see the short-term problems. I think we see that a lot as well in um, who societies demonize. Uh, that is, Steve Jobs, for example, was hailed as this uh, genius businessman because he was uh, not only the face of it, but also the products that he created uh, improved people's lives dramatically. Um, we don't think the same way about uh, investment bankers or people whose activities are may well be extremely productive uh, and benefit us enormously, but they their activities are relatively opaque. Yeah, there is uh, something that economists talk about as the physical fallacy. The fact that uh, our minds have evolved over basically hundreds of thousands of years to see the value of having the right kind of rock or volcanic glass or shelter. And if someone creates that, we see that this is really a benefactor of, of mankind. But if someone helps us to, you know, the, the atoms are always there. Uh, they've always been there. And the interesting thing is who can arrange it into a beneficial uh, transformation that contributes to the value of those atoms. Well, that could be the person who comes up with funding it, could be the design, could be the person who gives us information about it, or who just comes up with an idea. Uh, our minds aren't really developed to understand the value that they are giving us. And that's why we always talk about the, the middle men who are supposedly not contributing anything to uh, wealth. And in a way, Socialism is, in its uh, Marxist formulation is a, is a version of the physical uh, fallacy. The fact that you only think that the person who lays his hands on the atoms and transforms it into something that we can use according to that kind of labor theory of value is the only person who contributes to uh, the wealth uh, that we're, we're getting. And obviously that's not the case. Um, taking the risk, uh, finding the market, connecting uh, the worker with uh, finance and with the end consumer, without that, it wouldn't be worth anything. It reminds me of this uh, old paper uh, that was uh, published in, I, I'm looking at it, Economica, the Economic Organization of a POW Camp uh, by Robert Radford. Uh, and in it, he sort of details the rations that everybody received at a POW camp and the extent to which the person who was engaged, facilitating all of the trade that was going on profited handsomely while everyone else was also made better off considerably. And that person is actually the one that creates the most value when we look at human history, because the, the reason why we were desperately poor for almost 300,000 years, uh, the average human being, is that we were all Renaissance men, in a way. We all had to have all the knowledge that it took to um, 
hunt, to gather, to grow food, to make our clothes, everything. The thing that has increased our wealth spectacularly during the last 200 years and reduced extreme poverty globally from around 90% to 9% today is the fact that we now can benefit from knowledge that we do not possess. And that's only made possible because we started to exchange ideas, favors, goods and services. And uh, therefore, we could also benefit from the work that everybody else did. And for that, we need um, open exchange. We need trade. And uh, that made all the difference. When we try to take stock of the risks associated with relatively less openness globally, you know, I, I think a lot of people say, well, look, this kind of openness would be bad for me so I can oppose it. Um, but all these other kinds of openness are great uh, for me because I get to consume all of these things. Um, and you don't necessarily see the what you're losing until it's until it's gone with respect to uh, trade in ideas, in goods and services. So how do you evaluate the risks associated with, as you mentioned, this this backlash against openness and uh, the tribalism that causes it and then is caused by it? Well, what is most interesting when I look at all the goods and services and technologies that we now take for granted and use every day and that we wouldn't want to live without, it's that they all started as a, um, an idea from a tiny minority. Uh, most people saw it as uh, worthless or impossible or stupid. And that goes not just for um, counterintuitive things like uh, vaccines and uh, uh, biotechnology. It even goes for simple, what we nowadays think of as simple technologies. I mean, uh, take... Um, the umbrella, the first person who used an umbrella in London uh, 250 years ago, he was uh, attacked viciously and taunted and uh, uh, people spat at him because it looked stupid to um, protect yourself against the rain. And the coach drivers thought that their jobs would be lost if, uh, if people could walk around in the rain and didn't have to take a coach. As Everything started as a surprise, and that's the greatest benefit of openness. Um, as Hayek once um, put it, to leave the most possible room for surprises. That's the thing that gives us uh, progress in the future as well. Had we known what we would lose without openness, well, we could have made that uh, calculation and say that, well, uh, the, um, the costs might be greater than the benefit. But the greatest benefit in every era from openness comes from surprises, being open to the things that are counterintuitive and that you think are worthless right now. It's only because we have open societies, open markets with a decentralized funding base so that someone who believes in this crazy idea that someone comes up with in a garage, that's the only reason why they can live for a longer period of time and prove their worth. And in the end, they'll prove to be the next umbrella or the next personal computer or the next uh, life-saving drug. Mm -hmm. 
COVID-19 and its fallout have been devastating for California's economy at every level, but low-income and traditionally marginalized communities are among the hardest hit. This April, the Cato Institute will be hosting an online conference after COVID-19, Building an Inclusive Economy for California. This conference, part of Cato's project on poverty and inequality in California, will bring together a diverse group of political, business, and academic leaders to discuss the barriers to rebuilding economic opportunity in poor and minority communities ravaged by COVID-19. For more details on speakers and program information or to register, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.